today is Palm Sunday, and uh, if you don't know what that is or what that means, it's the week before Jesus was crucified, and there's this scene in the scriptures where he's riding a donkey into Jerusalem, and all of the people begin to lay palm branches in the road uh, as a way to honor him as the coming king, reigning, conquering king. I'm not sure they understood what kind of king he was when they were laying those palm branches down. I think they had an expectation of uh, a conquering king that would reign, you know, and, and free them from the Romans. That didn't happen like that. That wasn't why he came. Um, but they, they were laying the palm branches down, and Jesus comes through, and they're singing, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king of kings. And that, that image is in our minds. If you've read the scripture, that image is in all of our minds. But I, I look at Palm Sunday, really, I've always looked at Palm Sunday as a time to begin preparing my heart for what's coming the following weekend. In other words, see, the, the thing about Easter for a lot of people and even our culture and our nation, you know, Easter is another holiday, right? You go into Walmart or wherever and you get through uh, Halloween, and then, you know, Thanksgiving, and then now, then they change everything out real quick for Christmas, and then they try to sell you hearts and cards for Valentine's Day, and maybe some Mardi Gras stuff, you know, and then, and then we just move on to Easter as another holiday, right? That, how many of you know that's not what it is? It's not another holiday, and a holiday in the sense of, praise God, we should celebrate it. But all the people that are going into Walmart and buying, you know, uh, pink little bunnies and eggs and the little frilly stuff that goes in the baskets and all that while it's all fun. And, and all, uh, it's very sad to reduce Easter to that. Easter has nothing to do with that. Easter has nothing to do with the holiday as it's celebrated. It's so much more than that. And I do think the reason why a lot of people miss the, the power of Easter is because they get caught up in that. And that's why I think Palm Sunday, the most significant thing about Palm Sunday is to begin preparing your heart for Easter. To begin preparing your heart for the power of Easter. Why prepare your heart? Because the gospel is not received with the mind. The gospel is not received with just the mind. The gospel is received with the heart. So you didn't, you didn't become saved. You didn't become a Christian by believing God with your mind. That's not how you become saved. You became saved. You became born again by believing something in your heart. So when I say prepare your heart, yeah, prepare your heart for Easter because if you just approach, if you just approach Easter from a mental standpoint, from a, a natural standpoint, carnal, fleshly standpoint, you're going to miss the power of Easter. You're going to miss the power of it. Let me read this to you, Romans 10, 9, very familiar passage of Scripture. Romans 10, 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. See, he didn't say confess with your mouth. That's a physical part. He didn't say confess with your mouth and believe with your mind. He said confess with your mouth something that already transpired and happened in here. Confess with your mouth. Let your mouth say, let your mouth speak about a transformation that has happened inside of here. And even the word heart really just means spirit. 
If you've been coming to this church for any amount of time, you already know that man is not just one dimensional. Man is spirit, soul, and body. Three dimensional. And this body, this, this shell, when you die, they're going to put it in the ground. People are going to cry. But your spirit is going somewhere. Your spirit is leaving your body and it's going somewhere. So he said, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart or could say in your spirit that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that word saved encompasses a lot in scripture. Saved, first of all, from hell. Saved from death. Saved from eternal separation from God. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. You see, justification is, is, uh, is, it means to be made right before God. All of your sin eliminated. And he says, you receive that justification by believing something in your heart. Also, why prepare your heart? Because the condition of your heart affects what you're able to receive from God. We see this in Scripture so plainly. The condition of your heart affects what you are able to receive from God, just like in this room this morning. You see, you have people that come to church sometimes, and they're very lackadaisical. They don't, they just, they're, it's like another thing they do in their week. And it's like other things they do. They're, they're distracted. They got their phones, they're out. They, they have a very lackadaisical attitude. Then you have people that are here because they're hungry for God. And they believe that the Word of God deserves honor. They believe that the name of God deserves honor. So when they come, they approach it like that. And see, that's important how you approach it. Why? Because the condition of your heart will affect what you receive. There's some people, not to be, you know, rude, but this is a reality of church and the ministry. Some people will leave here today not having received anything. How do I know? Because they left Jesus' ministry without receiving anything. And if they left Jesus' ministry, some of them, without receiving anything, what do, you think's gonna, what do you think about mine? It doesn't matter how good I preach it or how much I yell at you and spit on you and all that. There's some people, their heart is just not going to receive anything from God. The Bible calls it fallow ground or hard ground. Sometimes when you... See, the Bible says preaching is like sowing seed. And it depends on the soil that the seed's being sown into. Some of the seed is very hard ground. It's hard to get that seed in that ground. The ground is a representation for a person's heart. So the condition of your heart affects what you will receive from God even this morning. But we're talking about Easter next weekend. I'm talking about preparing your heart for that. Because I want you to get every single thing that God has for you on Easter Sunday. And I'm going to be approaching it different, and I hope you are. Because this is the day that we celebrate the reality of the cross. The reality of what, of what happened. Really, you could say what earth, what the universe, what the solar system, what everything is about, we celebrate next Sunday. So what am I doing from here till then? I'm beginning to prepare my heart. And each day in my prayer time at home, I will be preparing my heart. By reading the resurrection story, reading Romans, reading in the Bible about what God has done. The condition of your heart affects what you receive from God. Listen to this, Isaiah 66, 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one 
to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Well, what if you're proud? What if you have no respect for the word? Well, then you don't get the same thing as the person who is humble and contrite and trembles at the word of God. Why would you tremble at the word of God? Out of respect and honor. So we see in Scripture often the condition of your heart affects what you receive from God. Very clearly, a person who is humble, contrite before the Lord and has so much respect for the word of God that they tremble at the word of God. He says, that's the person whom I'm looking to. In Mark chapter 3, the Bible says that Jesus was grieved by the hardness of the Pharisee's heart. So, see, if I look at you on the outside, if I look across, I can tell a lot about you. I can see your hair color, your eye color, your skin color, what size or shape you are, how old you are. I can see a lot. There's one thing I can't see. I can't see the condition of your heart. But how many of you know that God... Just as easy as I can see those outside things, he sees the condition of the heart. It's not, it, see, it's hard for us to discern a person's heart. It's very difficult and actually kind of dangerous because you can, you can miss it. You can, you can think something that's not true. For God, it's not like that. If I can look at you and tell what color shirt you're wearing, it's just that easy for God to look at your heart and see just what condition it's in, just what it's like. That's why he was grieved by the hardness Of the Pharisee's heart. I wonder if God's grieved this morning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know, I wonder wonder that sometimes. Is God grieved by the way that we approach worship? By the way that we approach the word? By the way we approach the word of God being taught? By being in this place today. We're not going back, you know, to the days where, you know, super holy and legalistic and all of that. But how many of you think we should still have honor and respect for the word of God? When we come in, he ought to have all of our attention. Every distraction ought to be put aside. We ought not approach coming to church the way we do going to a movie theater, you know, right? It's much different than that. It ought to be with respect and honor. And that shows the condition of our heart. That shows the condition of our heart. When your heart feels that way towards God, you'll demonstrate it when you're in here. So the Bible says that he was, Jesus was grieved by the hardness of their heart because he could see it. And he was, he was grieved that their hearts were so hard that they could not even perceive that God in the flesh was standing right in front of them. Imagine how hard you'd have to be, how far from God you'd have to be to have God literally standing right in front of you, talking to you face to face, and you can't even perceive that God Almighty is right in front of you. That's how hard their hearts were. So the Bible says he was grieved by it. So what I have for you this morning is I have three questions. I have three questions to help you prepare your heart for Easter. Because remember, the condition of your heart is going to determine what you get out of Easter. And not just the Easter service. I'm talking about the Easter season. Three questions that I want you to ask yourself. Now, if I were you, if I were in your position, what I would be doing is I'd write these questions down and I'd write down all the scriptures that pertain to them. And during the week, I would use these during my personal prayer and devotional time as a way to prepare my heart for Easter. Because just hearing it this morning, uh, 
you know, it's going to do something. But what I'm talking about is actually not just doing something today. I'm talking about all week how to prepare your heart for Easter. And I want you to meditate on these three questions. See, in the world that we live in, not everything is microwaved and fast food. And the Spirit of God's not like that. We think, oh, well, I just showed up, you know, and I'm going to get a little something today. Well, the Bible actually says if you diligently seek Him or if you seek Him with all your heart. So sometimes that requires a little digging in, a little diving in, right? A little more work, a little more effort. So three questions I want you to meditate on this week. Number one, did Jesus die for me? This may seem like a very simple question, but I want you to think about this. Did Jesus die for and put your name in the blank? Did Jesus die for me? Not the world. I know if you're in here this morning, you probably believe Jesus died for the world. My question to you is not, did Jesus die for humanity? Not, did Jesus die for the world? My question that I want you to meditate on as you prepare your heart for Easter is, did Jesus die for Josh? Did he die for you? Did he die for me? That's the question I want you to to think about and meditate on. And I want you to think of it in these terms. If there weren't billions and billions of people, would Jesus have come and sacrificed his life? Would he have sacrificed his life for five billion? One billion? Three hundred million? Fifty thousand? Five thousand? A hundred? Ten, five, one. Would Jesus, or I should say, did Jesus die for me? Was I, am I valuable enough that the God of heaven would have thought it's worth it to send my son to die for the one? I believe this question is answered in Scripture. But it's an important question for every believer. How do I know? Well, because I was raised in church and for the first 15 years of my life, I only ever thought about Jesus dying in terms of the idea that he died for the world. I never really fully understood that, no, he died for me. And when I understood how valuable I was to God, me as an individual, when I understood how valuable I was to God, it changed everything in my relationship with God. Jesus did not come just to die for the world. He came to die for you as an individual. And I want you to meditate on that question. And I want you to meditate on that thought. Did Jesus die for me? Here's what the scripture has to say on that. Let's look at John 3.16 first. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. So that's one of the more familiar passages of Scripture. And uh, everybody, lots of people, know that passage. And in that passage, it demonstrates God died for the world. In other words, there's no one excluded. That's the point of this passage. No one's excluded. Whosoever believes is brought into the family of God. But notice other passages like this. Psalm chapter 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Praise God for what he did for the world. But my question is, did Jesus die for you? Does he know you? Did he know your sin? Does he know your name? 
Here's what David said. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. That's right. He knows what time you got up to this morning. He knows what time you went to bed last night. He knows what you're doing before you went to bed last night. Think about that. All right, we're not going to get off on that. <laughs> you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You go, am I that important to God? Well, the answer is yes, but it's not a matter of being important to God. It's just a matter of what he's capable of. It's just a matter of he's not like us. And while I can keep track of my two kids, and that's a stretch, and some of you have four or five, and I wouldn't want to be you. <laughs> uh, while it's a stretch for me to keep track of my two, it's no stretch for God to keep track of all seven plus billion. And I know that's hard for our minds to understand, but you see, when you read this, you go, oh, how does God do that? He, he, he goes, that's, that's who I am. That's not a stretch for me. Uh, that's not hard for me. That's not a sacrifice for me. It's just a reality of the way things are and who he is. So every single person, you know, he knows my thoughts. That's right. You can go, you don't, don't, don't hide under the seat right now. You know, that's not going to help you. He can see through the seat. But he, he knows your thoughts. He knows your words. He knows your motives. He knows every single pain in your body, in your mind. In your heart. He knows everything about you. He's not far or distant like we think he is. See, when we pray, we close our eyes. Did you know that's not a prerequisite to praying? You don't have to close your eyes so you can imagine God. He's right there. Everything you've ever said, whether it was in a prayer or not, he hears it. Okay? You don't have to be praying for God to hear you. You just have to be talking. God hears you. When, you. when you cry out and you're in pain and you're in frustration, he hears it. He's very, very intimately acquainted with you. And it's, it's not just us as a group. It's you as an individual. There's not a single thing that's ever happened in your life that he doesn't know about. Every time that you hurt, he hurt. Every time that you cried, he cried. Every time you celebrated, he celebrated. How do I know? Because he tells us to do it. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. He's not telling you to do something that he doesn't do. So, he's so intimately acquainted with you and your life and every detail. And guess what? He still died for you. Because some of us, when we hear that, we go, oh, God, if he knows all that, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in deep, deep trouble. No, he knows all of that, and he still loves you, and he still calls out to you, and he still draws you in for repentance because he wants the best for you and for your life. So, David said, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. You see, that revelation that David had is one of the reasons why David was so close to God. Because he realized that this, and this is what we mean in church when we say you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You see, you cross over. Every believer has to cross over from a corporate, we are the church, we are his children. Yes, all true. 
But every believer has to cross from that to, wait a minute, he's, he's not just our God, our Father, our Savior. He's my God, and he's my Savior, and he's my dad, my father. See, when you cross to there, that's when a person's relationship with God totally transforms. When you realize that every morning, the moment you wake up, the God of heaven knows about it. Oh, Josh is up. Oh, he's making his coffee. Oh, he's heading down to the prayer room. Praise God, getting ready. I'm going to meet him there. That's how God thinks about it. There's not a moment, not a second, not a millisecond of your life that he's not right there. And many just go about every day ignoring him like he's not even there, never talk to him, never say nothing. He's right there. He knows when you sit down, when you rise up, he discerns your thoughts. He searches out your path and you're lying down in all your ways. Even before a word is on your tongue, he knows it. Look at verse 13. For you formed me in my inward parts. You were not an accident. There's never been an accident on this planet. Any horrible situation you can think about, not an accident. God formed them in the inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He was involved even before you were born. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it. Very well. Some of you are thinking, well, if he knitted me together in my mother's womb, I wish he'd have consulted me first because I had a few changes I wanted to make. You know, I could have given some input. The others of you, you're like uh, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast, you know. Look in the mirror, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Praise God. Hallelujah. (laughs) See, you need help. He said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Are you getting this? Are you understanding this? This is not David. This is all of us. And it's not hard for God. It's not a stretch. It didn't tax him one bit. To do this and to know this about every single human being that ever walked the face of the planet. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In other words, when you were just goo. In your book were written every one of them, talking about my days. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when I was yet, when as of yet there was none of them. Listen, before you were even born, he knew the book of your life. He knew the end from the beginning, every decision that you would make. It doesn't mean he controls every decision you make. That's a whole other sermon of how this all works, okay? Not that anybody's ever going to completely figure it out. But he knew it. He knows it in advance. And listen, I can't describe to you how infinitely important you are to God. If the creator of the universe, this is what he's doing for every single person on the planet, how must he feel about us? 
So to answer the question, did Jesus die for me? Yeah. Yeah, he did. Because he knew you before you were even born. He had the whole book of your life. You were the, you were the most important one. And, and even all the, the parables in that Jesus tried to explain this, he said, he said, look, he said, God would leave the 99 to go after the one. And he gave the woman with the gold coin that was lost. She's not happy that she had 10 coins and one is gone. And she's, oh, well, I got nine. No, she says, I'm going to go find that one. And that's you before God. Luke chapter 12. Jesus said this. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? In other words, they're practically worthless. You can get five of them for two pennies. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. So hold on a minute. Not only is he keeping track of you and me. It says not a single sparrow falls to the ground and God doesn't know about it. So that tells you right there this isn't hard for God. Because if it was hard for God, he might cut out. You know, he'd have to cut out something like we do. Oh, I ain't got time for all that, so i got to focus on this. No, he's got time for the sparrows. And that's just one bird. There's 1,500 species. No, I'm just kidding. I made that up. I don't have no idea how many species there are. There's a lot of them. But he doesn't just keep track of sparrows. He keeps track of every bird, every insect, every caterpillar, Every ant. Now, I know it doesn't mean he's like one of those weird people that you stamp on a caterpillar, you know, and God's upset. If little kids don't worry about that, that's not. It's just saying he knows about it. All right, he's aware. <clears throat> if that is true, I'm in big trouble. Because when I was a kid, we tied them to bottle rockets. You know, we had all kind of fun with them. But <laughs> it's not hard for God to keep track of you and all the animals, the birds, everything he created. It's not hard. You know, God knows how many grains of sand there are on the planet. There's, there's nothing that escapes his... Think about it. There's no area of ignorance in God's mind. There's not, there's not a single piece of, of information on this planet that he doesn't know. There's not a secret that he doesn't know. There's not any area of his mind. God's never said, oh. <laughs> oh. God's never said that. Look, he says not five sparrows are sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God. Look at this. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many Sparrows. The Bible says that even the number of the hairs on your head are numbered. It's not hard for God to keep track, especially if you like Sullivan. It's not hard to keep track if there's no hair up there. It's not hard to keep track. But <laughs> He knows the hair. He knows the number of hair. That shows you how intricate he is. Again, there's not an area. Anything you could think of, does God know this? The answer is yes. Does he know how many times this has happened on the planet? The exact number of times? Yes. Does he, have, does he know how many cheeseburgers have been eaten worldwide in 2019? Yes. Ask any question you want. He knows the answer to every. There's not an area of his mind that he doesn't know. So when you go, does he know this about me? Yeah, because you're just part of that bigger creation, and he knows every single thing about you. And he says, 
you are of more value than many of those things that he keeps track of. So did Jesus die for you? Yes. He died for you, not just for the world. He died for you. See, Paul got this revelation in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He explains it this way. He doesn't, Paul always talks in terms of the, the church at large, but here he brings it down to a personal level. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me as an individual. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul had this revelation I was crucified with Christ. Christ is living through me. And the Son of God who loved me gave himself for me. He didn't just give himself for the world. He gave himself for me. And this, if that hasn't been your mindset, you need to make that little tweak. Because it's going to change and transform your relationship with God. And just knowing and understanding that how much he knows about you and how much he loves you will change the way that you interact with him. You never have to ask the question again, well, does God care about fill in the blank? The answer is yes, he cares because he cares about the sparrows. So, of course, he cares. Second question that I want you to meditate on as you prepare your heart for Easter is the tomb really empty? Is the tomb really empty? And I mean as a matter of fact. In reality, not a story, not a fairy tale, not a myth, not something we read about on the pages. Is the tomb really empty? Because if it is, if the tomb that Jesus Christ was laid in really is empty, then it changes everything. It changes everything for every human on the planet. And I want you to think about this, because a lot of us take it for granted. Oh, yeah, Jesus died, born again, rose, resurrected. You know, we just go through it, almost numb about it. Let me ask you, I want you to meditate on this question. Is the tomb really empty? Because if the tomb is empty, that means that there is a God who has power over death. And if there's a God that has power over death, then that means there is a way to escape death. Because somebody has power over it. And the Bible teaches us that actually every single human being on this planet has a way of escape from the one thing that we should all be fearing, which is death. If that tomb is empty then there really is a God that has overcome death, and death does not have the final say. You ever seen uh, the Christmas Carol? There's been many versions of it where at the end, Scrooge, he's having the encounter with the last ghost, future, uh, the ghost of future, present, whatever, how it said. And he's like over the grave, and he's trying, they're trying to throw him in the grave, and he's looking down, and he sees the coffin open up, and there's like fire and flames coming out, and he's just screaming out of his mind, you know, over the grave. Like, if death is what a lot of people think it is, that's how all of us should be feeling every second of the day. 
Because what difference does it make if I live another 10, 20, 30 years if I'm just going to end up like that? If I, if I just all of a sudden lose consciousness and the lights go out and that's it, that is a terrifying thought to me. But here is the reality of Scripture is that no one ever really dies. Please understand this. Please understand this. No one ever really dies. Death is not, is not a real thing in terms of who you are as a real person. Okay, Death only refers to your physical body, but did you know that's not the realest part of you? When your body dies, your spirit is leaving your body. And it's going one of two places. There's no third, fourth, fifth options. When your spirit, when your body dies, your spirit is leaving your body. You, you will not die. I don't, know if it's for, I don't know if it's a blink where your body goes out and you, you can even just tell it was like a blip and your eyes open somewhere else. Or it's just like you, you've been awake the whole time and these eyes close and you just float on out and you're looking around the room. I'm, I'm not sure. It never happened to me. But... <laughs> I've, I've read people that said it happened to them. But when your body dies, your spirit is coming out. Now listen, please understand, this is going to happen to everybody. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. When your body dies, your spirit is coming out. And it is moving, it is transitioning locations. It's leaving this earth and it is going somewhere else. And it is either going to heaven to be with God for eternity or to hell to be eternally separated from God. So this question of this question of is the tomb really empty makes all the difference in the world because this is what this is what that's connected to. It it means that we serve a God that overcame the power of death that that grip is on all of us. And that it and that you don't have to have eternal separation from God if that's true. And that's a terrifying thought to me to think about having to go into the grave without God, having to transition into the next life without God. Here's how Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If Christ has not been raised, okay, if Christ has not been resurrected, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, all these good things, if there's no resurrection, if that tomb is not empty, then everything we're talking about is nothing. Everything we're talking about means nothing because they're just, they're just good, fluffy you know, thoughts and principles and ideas. But what does it all matter if we're, going to be, if we're just going to die anyway and go into the grave and turn to dirt and get eaten by worms? If that's the end, it doesn't mean anything. He said if Christ hasn't been, and what he means when he says if Christ has not been raised, what he means is if, if Christ has not conquered death. If Christ did not really conquer death and that tomb is empty, your life is pointless. That's how a lot of people believe. A lot of the atheists and, and uh, biology professors and people writing books, and you just talk to them, and they say, well, you know, when you die, this and this happens. In other words, your life is pointless because you're going to live for a few years, and then you're dead anyway. What does it matter? But the Bible says that eternity is written in the heart of every man. Everyone knows. Everyone is, has a fear of what happens when you die. Why? Because the Bible says eternity is written in the heart of man. That means it was placed there by God. So we think about it. 
We ask questions about it. We dwell about it. And if you don't believe there's an eternity and you don't believe there's an afterlife, you have to intentionally drive that thought down over and press it down over and over and over again. And like a, like a stubborn weed through the concrete, it'll just keep coming up. And you got to push it back down and stamp it down and write books about it and keep convincing yourself, oh, no, there's nothing that happens when we die. Oh, there's no, And listen to people that think just like that, but make no mistake about it. It's in your heart, and you know it's in your heart. It's in the heart of every man. Every person knows there is an afterlife and that there is an eternity. And then when we die, that's not all there is to it. And you can try to stamp it out as much as you want, but it's engraved on the heart of every man by your creator. So without the resurrection, we have no proof that our God actually has power over death. See, we take a lot of these things for granted. We just assume God is all-powerful. We just assume, oh, yeah, God can do. But there was a time where people were figuring these things out. We know it now. But the reality and the, the, the revelation that God conquered death and we don't have to be afraid to die. Some of you solved that a long time ago, so you don't care. You're like, yeah, I've known this for years. I ain't been afraid to die in decades. But some people are just now hearing this, and they're going, man, that's right. I don't have to be afraid to die. Listen, no Christian should be afraid of death. Because death isn't a real thing. I mean, it's, it's not really a real thing. It's just a transition. That's it. That's it. And, and death, for a Christian, death is a relief. De- death is a promotion. Death is, I cast off this old, sinful, broke, corrupt world, and I go to where I was really created to be. So death is not something... We have to change the way that we look at death. And this is part of the Easter celebration. It's to, it, part of the Easter celebration is to go, praise God, we don't have to be afraid of death. Jesus conquered it. He's already proven that he conquered it. And you go, well, yeah, he conquered it for himself. You know, he, he proved that he can beat death, but what about us? Well, I'm glad you asked. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared, this is after the resurrection, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? He says, because you can go ask them for yourself. He's saying Jesus appeared to Peter, the 12, and then he appeared to 500 people at once who, by the way, are still alive. So if you want to go interview them and ask them, all 500 of them, and check their story out, he said, most of them are still alive. Go ask them if they saw Jesus resurrected because they're still alive. Verse 7, then... He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. So, is the tomb really empty? Yeah, the tomb is empty. And if you want to read some historical books on this subject, there's two really good books out there about proving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of them is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. The other one is called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And both of these books dive into the historical facts surrounding the resurrection. In other words, they don't prove that Jesus rose from the dead from the Bible. They leave the Bible out of it. And they go just based on historical facts, like we would figure out anything else in world, like about World War II or anything else, how we would prove if something happened. They approach the resurrection like that. And 
clearly from both examples. It's easy to prove that there was a resurrection and that, yes, the tomb really is empty. Continuing in 1 Corinthians down to verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And notice this, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. See, Paul has such a revelation about death that he doesn't even want to say the first fruits of those who have died. Because that's not even how he sees it anymore. He says, no, they're just asleep. And one day they're going to wake up. And they're going to get a new body. But notice the Bible teaches that Jesus is the first fruits of many that are going to be raised from the dead. We're all going to be raised from the dead. For as by man came death, by man has, also, uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's for everyone. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning, meaning die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, this broken down, dying body, must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on the immortal body. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. So yeah, he conquered death, but he conquered death for you. He conquered death so that we would have eternal life with him. Amen? Amen. See, every life, every earthly life has two phases. The time here on this earth in this decaying shell, and then your eternal life where you go on to be with God. Right now you're in phase one, which doesn't last very long. Phase one will be over and you're going to enter into phase two. And here's the part that we all ought to really pay attention to is what we do and the decisions we make during phase one determines how we spend phase two. Wouldn't it be a shame if everything that we're talking about this morning, about the goodness of God, the resurrection, eternal life, wouldn't it be a shame if somebody in this room missed out on that because they could not, they could not yield and they could not submit to God and to the work of the cross? Because everyone's not going to partake in this. And that's my final question to you this morning to help you prepare your heart for Easter is, is my eternity secure? Is my eternity secure? Not, can my eternity be secure? Not, do you believe everything we've been talking about this morning? But I want you to meditate and think about that question for you as an individual when you stand before God and you have to answer for your life is your eternity secure? 
Do you realize that there could not be a more important question to ever ask yourself than this right here? Because see, every deci- whatever decisions we make during the day that we consider important, you know, good sound principles that we do, you know, we save money, right? We put back for retirement. We invest. We take care of our health. We go see the doctor. We go to the dentist. We do all these very important things. They all have to do with a very, very, very short 80 to 90 year period that I was calling phase one on this planet. But this, this question, is my eternity secure, has to do with how you're going to spend the rest of your life after those 80 years. And isn't it crazy how focused we are on the 70 to 80 years? It's almost like we, don't, we live like there's not an eternity. But so many are so good and so responsible about making amazing decisions for their short 70 to 80 year life, but they have no preparation for eternity. They'll buy health insurance, car insurance, house insurance. If, if people, you know, play sports, or they'll, they'll insure their fingers and their hands, and they, they insure all for this 70, 80 year period of time, and they give no thought to do they, do they have insurance for eternity, for the afterlife. Well, you don't have to have insurance. You can have a guarantee. You can have a guarantee. You can know exactly what's going to happen to you when you die. So this question, is my eternity secure? There's not a more important question you could ever ask yourself in this life. Is my eternity secure? That's one thing you don't need to have any doubts about. That's one thing you don't need to have any questions about. You need to know for sure that your eternity is secure. This is what Jesus said about the afterlife. John 14, 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? See, Jesus told his disciples this before he left. He said, listen, I'm, I'm crossing over out of phase one into phase two. And when I get there, I'm going to begin preparing a place for you. And there's plenty of room for everybody. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. See, Jesus said, I'm leaving this place, and I'm going over to the other side, and I'm going to prepare a place. Then I'm coming back to get you, whether that's at my second coming or at death for you. I'm coming back to get you. And then you're coming that where I am and where I live and where I stay, you may be also. And it's better than you could have ever imagined because it's way more than just being there with him. He's got a whole inheritance waiting on you. That's another sermon I'm not going to get to this morning because it would take too much time. You know, some, I am looking down here though because some pastors, they have like a clock in the back, you know, with it ticking down to them how much time they have left in their sermon. But I just use the battery life on my iPad. And it's at 94%. It's, I think, 10 hour, I think we've got 10 hours of battery life here. And if I turn the brightness down on the screen, it's even longer. So just, we're good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but he said, I go to prepare a place for you. That, and this is his goal. This is, the, this is the vision of it all. That where I am, you may be also. Man, this lot, you know, everybody knows, this life is hard. There's bad things that happen. As a pastor, I walk through those bad things with people all the time. Every kind of devastation, destruction, 
you can imagine from things we created and things we didn't create, you know, in our own life. Just horrible, horrible things. But listen, there's going to be a day that where he is, we will be also. And all this will be just a distant memory. So this question of, is my eternity secure? Nothing could be more important. How do you know if your eternity is secure? Well, the Bible makes it very clear. John 5, 24 is one place that it explains it. It says, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see, that's how God already looks at you if you're a Christian. He already looks at you as physically dead and spiritually alive. In other words, you've already passed from death to life in the mind of God because your eternity is secure. Your eternity is secure. Now, every person in here, that may not be the case. Your eternity may not be secure. And I read at the beginning Romans chapter 10, 9, and 10 that explains again how this happens by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and submitting your life to Him, to live for Him, to follow Him, to become a Christian, a follower of Christ. If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity this morning to make that right, to pray, to repent before God, and to confess and profess your belief in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to stand on your feet with me this morning.